0: Did you ever read any of the Arthur books in your lifetime? That's okay. It's kinda, kind of obscure. It was a book. I read them for sure. Absolutely. Um, I was a very young child when I got my very first pair of glasses. And that little aardvark that wears glasses and gets through life like that, that was my homeboy. He resonated with me. And so the show on PBS, like all of that. I was all over the Arthur stories. Now, there is a very um, theologically significant Arthur story that we're going to talk about this morning, where uh, when Arthur was in about, I think it was like third grade moving into fourth grade in those books, he had heard from the other students that the teacher of fourth grade, Mr. Rathbone, which that's an intimidating name, right? Like that, I don't want to jump into fourth grade with a guy named Rathbone, that's scary, but... Uh, Mr. Rathbone has this reputation amongst all the other kids and they tell Arthur, like, he's so scary, he's so tough, he's so mean, you don't want to be in his class. And so Arthur is, of course, very terrified when he walks into fourth grade. And what does he find out? Well, he finds out Mr. Rathbone's a really nice guy. He finds out that he's a good teacher. He, he pushes the kids and he helps them understand but he makes it fun and he's a great teacher. And that story that Arthur had been told about Mr. Rathbone before he goes into class that colored the reputation the way that he thought that Mr. Bar- Rathbone was going to be. Now maybe you've had a situation like that in your life. Maybe there was a boss, maybe there was a coach, maybe there was a coworker and everyone's like, "Oh my gosh, can you believe this person?" Like they tell you the story and then you walk in Kind of scared, or you walk in with this picture about how it's going to be. It's the complete opposite. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. And like there were stories about you before someone showed up and they said, Man, that Andrew guy, like his sermons are so boring. Or you know, I don't know what it was, but whatever it is, like there's a reputation. And With this series, we're in a series called Mythical Gods. This is the final episode of this sermon series, and so I'm going to do my best to stick the landing on this. And in this series, what we have been doing is we've been trying to tackle some of those myths that we have been told, those stories about God that we thought were true before we showed up. And if you actually read the Bible, that's not the whole story. Some of these are kind of built on half-truths, or like something that's kind of true about God, but not completely true. So I'm going, to do, I'm going to do a quick recap of some of the ones that we have talked about, and before we jump in, I do want to give credit where credit is due. So when I wrote papers for school, I had to cite my sources, because if I didn't, that's called plagiarism, and that's bad. So... I'm going to cite my sources, and big thanks to um, Pastor Anley. Andy Stanley preached a message called The Gods of the No Testament, because there is no testament in which you find them. Ha <laughs> pastor jokes. And then, also, you've got the book Reason for God by Tim Keller, and he has a podcast series that is actually pretty early on in coming out called Questioning Christianity. And I'm big fans of both of those works. If you want to explore faith and who God is, those might be some good options if you want to go for the extra credit. If you're really cool, that might be what you do. Now, uh, let's talk about the gods we've talked to up to this point. And what what Pastor Andy Stanley would say about these gods is they're stories that we picked up in childhood. A lot of them are ones that you learn in Sunday school. Uh, Now, Sunday school teachers are heroes. Okay, I lead, like I have worked with Sunday school teachers. And Sunday school is awesome, so I'm not knocking Sunday school, but they have what I like to call the necessary heresies. There's, There's these things that we say in Sunday school that are mostly true, but not completely true. Like one of those is we say, okay, where does God live? And all the little preschoolers go, up there. Like, that's what they say. And I'm like, okay, technically, no. God is omnipresent, you ridiculous four-year-old. Don't you know that God is both in and around and all over? Like, so there's a reason we have these stories, and it's because we picked them up in childhood. But here's the deal about adult life. It's complicated, it is hard, and it is messy. And so when we try to put our adult expectations are adult questions on the God that we picked up in childhood, it breaks. It can't support that because it's not a complete picture of who he is. And so we're trying to almost in the negative paint this picture of what is God actually like as we start to move beyond some of these things that we've heard about what he might be like. And so one of those is the superhero God. The bodyguard God. And I've talked to lots of people and they can point to a moment in their life where their faith was shattered because something bad happened to them. They, they went through a struggle. There was a diagnosis. There was a spouse or a parent or a loved one that passed away. And there's these great big questions that uh, people will start to ask. Well, here's the deal. No pastor has stood on a stage and say you should believe in God because nothing bad has ever happened to anyone. We've never said that. So why does the opposite of that break our faith, when something bad does happen to us? And there's, in the Bible, there are stories, like God intervenes, God does stuff, God moves in people's lives, and he protects his people sometimes, but not from everything. And so we need to have a more nuanced and more realistic view of who God is. Number two is the vending machine God. You walk up, you press the button on the vending machine, and it delivers the diet soda caffeinated goodness right to you. God is not like that. He is not the divine pinata, and I think that makes him good. I want you to imagine, for, right, just for a moment, the sheer chaos that would erupt in your life if God gave you everything you asked for in high school. Whoa! Like you would have... You would not be married to the right person. You would not be like in the right field or job. You would have wrecked that car that you really, really wanted. Like This would not be good. And God is a good parent. And you know what I know about good parents? They do not give toddlers Mountain Dew at 3 a.m. <laughs> right? That's a bad move. And so God doesn't give us everything that we want. He's not the divine pinata. He's not the vending machine. This one... This one's a little trickier. This one's the BFF God, the always present. I might even call that like the security blanket God, where God is just always with you, like Linus from Peanuts. He's got the blanket everywhere that he goes. And we think sometimes we tell this story that, well, then I had the peace that surpasses understanding. And we expect that if God is going to be with us at every moment, that we can feel his presence. And that's just not true. Even Mother Teresa, who I will argue is much better at following Jesus than I am, right? Mother Teresa went through seasons that are documented in which God was silent for her. And she would ask questions Now I don't know what you have to do to open up the communication track if Mother Teresa can't even make it happen, okay? So let's not be surprised when we go through seasons and we feel like God has gone quiet on us, where we're confused and we don't know what is happening. God is not a security blanket. And then the last one is the judge dread, the killjoy God, the guilt God which maybe this is the picture you got of God growing up in church. If it is fun, God says, no. Roller rinks, Satan, of the devil. Mom, can I watch that movie? No, Satan, of the devil. God does not like those movies. And anything, whatever it is, I mean, you can, you can name it, and there's a church tradition that has, like, outlawed it or banned it or something like that. Um, and the truth is there are things that we should stay away from, right? That's, there are things that will land you in worlds of hurt. Please do not go there. But also God is a God of justice and he's not okay with all of the wrong and the hurt that we see in this world. And so it's a half, it's a half truth, but God is also not up there with a lightning bolt ready to zap you every time you step out of line. And so this is a picture, this is a fear-based picture of God that we have to move beyond. Because I think it's really hard to love a God that's like that. If you're, you're on a short leash, you're afraid of stepping out and that there's massive consequences. I don't think that's a picture of God that we can live with. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk about of two different mythical gods. One of them we're going to spend a large chunk of time on. One of them is going to be shorter. So we're going to talk about the anti-science god. There's this story that exists in our culture that god and science are at war with each other. They're just constantly fighting. And here's how I can tell you that I know that story is true. Because I'm a pastor who is married to a public school science teacher. And when I told, like, you guys all just laughed. Like, what's wrong with that? When I was starting to, like, when we were gonna get married and I was telling people about, you know, the love of my life and what she does, and they're like, oh, she's a public school science teacher. How does that work? Well, quite well, thank you. No, there's like there's no conflict. The dinner table is not World War III, as one of us is saying, "Well, but you know, you just have to have faith." The other's like, "Yeah, but you know ibuprofen is a good thing. Like we're not, we're not having those fights at the Bullock dinner table because I don't know that we have to have this division like we've created. There's this cultural story. Now, especially what I've seen people do is that those on the God side have said, okay, there's a war between science and God, I'm drawing the line, I'm going to hang out on the God side, and by that, I mean that all of the intelligent, smart people who agree with me about everything, they are on the God side with me. And I've seen people do the opposite on the science side, where they say, okay, all the intelligent, smart people, all the ones who are willing to look at the evidence, they agree with me about absolutely everything. Guys, that is a dumb story that we left behind in middle school, okay? It doesn't work, because you can't just draw the line black and white. People are complicated. Did you know that if you set up a panel of all of, like, the Dallas church elders and leadership, and you started to really drill down on some of these theological questions, you're like, I'm just gonna sort out like the whole view on end times. You would get a bunch of different views because that is not a core issue to us. We are complicated people. Sometimes Ben and I disagree on things and I still get to keep my job. That's also very good. Now, uh, so you can't just say that like everyone in that camp is stupid, everyone in this camp is smart. All these people have faith. These people don't have this. We're not gonna do that. And so I wanna define what we are talking about when we talk about the difference or we talk about God and science, okay? So with science, this is how Merriam-Webster, right, would define it, a, the knowledge or a system of knowledge covering general truths or the operation of general laws, especially as obtained and tested through the scientific method. You're welcome, that was so helpful. Okay, I'm gonna sum it up. The um, great theologian Joanna Bullock said it this way, science is the methodological study of the natural world. Looking at what we have around us. Now I want to draw a line and say that's different from naturalistic atheism. That is different from true naturalism where the assertion that matter and the observable universe is the only thing that exists. That is actually not a scientific question. That's a philosophical one. And let's be honest, because sometimes when we're talking about God and science, we like to just flip-flop between all these different fields. We like to talk about philosophy and biology and astrophysics and epistemology, which is like the study of how we know what's true, and that'll really turn your brain inside out. And we jump from all these different things. But let's just be honest and say, okay, let's call science science. And we'll call philosophy Philosophy. And so I am going to draw the line between those two things. And there are people much smarter than me who have come to this assertion because science cannot actually prove or disprove the existence of God. Because God exists outside of the observable universe. So, how could we come up with an experiment? Like, how could we come up with something to quantify whether God is definitively true or not? Because even if we did figure that out, then maybe we'd find a new experiment that disproved that later on. Like, that's how science works. It's this evolving study of what we think to be true, what we know at the time. And that that doesn't sound like something that is against like what I see in scripture. That gives me zero problems as I deal with the Bible. Um, when it comes to God, I'm going to define God as the God revealed in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible and the New Testament scriptures. And he is transcendent over creation. He built it, he made it, he set it into motion, but also imminent, meaning he works in creation. It says in um, the first chapter of John that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The way that Eugene Peterson translates that in the message is he says, God moved into the neighborhood. And we live in a world where God is active, but he is the creation who, or he is the creator who made it all. And so the truth about this story is that science is not the enemy of God. If God created this world and we study this world, then boom, there you have it. Um, St. Augustine said it this way, that all truth is god's truth and so when we take ibuprofen because we sprain our ankle running because that's something that happens sometimes like we are living in god's truth because he built this world and he gave us medication that helps us out when we get sick we go to the doctor like yes you get prayer And a lot of times when people do call, Ben and me, and they're like, can you pray for me? I'm sick. We're like, okay, absolutely. And when is the appointment? Like, when are you going to get this checked out? Because there's a both and. And nobody actually lives with a rejection of science in this world. Nobody actually lives that way. Raise your hand if you drove a car to get here this morning. Anybody drove a car? Okay, even those of you that walked, you burned calories, and used, you know, your muscles and your brain, electrons and all that sciencey stuff that I'm not even going to go into and show my lack of knowledge in this area. But like, we don't live as if science is not real. Even the most conspiracy theorist flat earther who's putting videos on YouTube grabs a computer, records a video, plugs into the internet, which is the most technologically scientifically advanced thing that like we have going on as humans to upload their video so that everyone cannot believe in science. And so I don't think that God has to reject that. I don't think a faith in God has to reject science. Johannes Kepler, who was an astronomer way back in the day, he uh, said that science is thinking God's thoughts after him. It is the study of our natural world that God made. And so I am not bothered in the least, when we discover what was called the Higgs boson particle, right? Higgs boson particle. Everybody was like, whoa, it's the God particle. We found it. Because it was this particle that was supposed to have existed at the origin of the universe. When something happened and bang, there was a universe, there's this particle that gives mass to the other particles and i say thank you higgs boson particle because i like having mass like i like existing little less mass would be really nice but like having mass is a good thing and so when we find that particle my faith is not shattered because i feel like we're just like solving the who done it of like how did god do this and we're discovering that and i'm also not going to have my faith shattered if we find out that the higgs boson particle is you know just bupkis or we have a new theory I'm not, I'm not bothered by that. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Romans 1:19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. That means everybody, all the humans, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are, everyone is, without excuse. We open our eyes, we look at this world, and it's one of the best evidences that we have that there's a God, that the God of the Bible is true and active. Maybe you have been to something like Crater Lake, or a national park, or seen something just really cool that moved you, and there was this kind of metaphysical thing that happened. Now, once again, let's be honest, that's not science. I'm just tapping into the human experience as I'm talking about this. And um, in the uh, sitcom Parks and Rec, there is what Ron Swanson said, which is that real men can only cry at, I think he says, the birth of their child and the Grand Canyon. And there is this thing, like we see nature, we're like, oh, that moves me. And that's a good thing. That is what should happen if the God of the Bible is true. And so what we find in science is exactly what we should find if Genesis 1 and 2 are a thing. Let's look at Genesis 1. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When did God create everything according to Genesis 1? In the beginning. When was that? Someone at first service said yes. That's, that's the answer to that. When was that? Yes. So God creates the heavens and the earth, and then um, the earth is without form and void. We've got darkness. We've got ocean. And then in the story of Genesis 1, we have the days of creation. And so maybe they're not actually? The days of creation, maybe what we should call them is the days of ordering the universe. But for some reason, the Sunday school teachers still won't let that catch on. Okay, so what you've got in day one is God makes light and dark. In day two, you have God make, and he separates the sky and the sea. And then on day three, God has the land and the plants. And what he's done is on days one, two, and three, he has prepared, like he's made the field For what's going to happen in days four five and six and if you look there's some parallelism because just like he made light and dark he then fills it with planets sun moon and stars they're all showing up in there and then just like he made the sky and the sea god makes the fish and the birds and they fill the sky and the sea and then on day six he makes the animals and the humans they fill the land and the plants and so what we find in creation as we're studying, is that God made an ordered universe. Gravity is a wonderful thing. Light and dark, I like those things to stay separate. Like, these are wonderful things. Oxygen? I love that. I need it to stay in my lungs at the appropriate times. Science does not threaten God. And we also see on day seven, he rests. It's done. Mic drop. He ties a bow on the whole thing. And so, the universe should function according to natural laws that God set forth. And so my faith is not at all broken by this. And I want to talk about the Bible real quick. Uh, hopefully, you know, I, that, that's never been true. Andrew's never talked about the Bible real quick. But um, the Bible is not a science textbook. If I was stranded on a desert island I, and I was able to take one book with me, I would take How to Get Off Desert Islands for Dummies. Like, that is the book that I would take. I would not take the Bible and look at, you know, Genesis 1, and Jesus said, love your neighbor. I'm like, well, there's no neighbors on this desert island. So science is not, like, the Bible is not trying to answer all of these questions. It might inform it. It might line up with it. There's some good historical evidence. There's some really good things with that. But let's not say that science categorically has proven or disproven that the Bible is true. Let's leave things in the lanes that they are supposed to be. And then also, let's have some flexibility with what we mean when we say the Bible is true. Here's my mega sentence. When I say I believe the Bible is true, this is what I actually mean. I mean that the Bible, in its original autographs, when it was originally written, not one particular translation, But the actual scripture, when correctly interpreted, and there's a big caveat right there, because I have heard some interpretations. I have come up with some interpretations that are pretty crazy. And so when it's correctly interpreted, it is true in what it teaches and communicates. And God was writing those scriptures. They came about in partnership with fallen humans that have cultural backgrounds they have cultural things that i don't agree with i do not practice and that's the tension of believing in a god that moves in humans that's the tension of believing in the god of the bible and so i'm not going to put all of the weight of my belief in god on one interpretation of one passage imagine if my whole marriage was resting on the one task of me taking out the garbage How sad is that? Do you know what I did not do yesterday, guys? I did not take out the garbage, okay? I got to do that when I get home. But, like, it can't be based on that one thing. That's kind of a sad marriage. Like, it's a sad faith. If it's all resting on one interpretation of one thing. And I do want to acknowledge, so Paul says, if you're a Christian, the resurrection of Jesus, which I might you know, counter is not one passage. That's like a lot of passages because the resurrection of Jesus is a huge deal. He says, if that's not true, then our faith is really not amounting to anything we are to be pitied. But he does not say that if seven-day literal young earth creationism is not true, if this particular view of something is not true, then the whole thing falls apart. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. And so I want to to acknowledge miracles because miracles are in the Bible and they can be a sticky point for some people. As you're reading through the Bible, you're like, okay, I'm a person of science. I really agree. I want to understand how all this works. And then God is running around creation, breaking the rules, right? You read Genesis to Revelation. God is doing all this stuff. Well, here's one interesting way to think about it. Um, In a lot of those situations, when Jesus is casting out demons, when he is healing mental illness, when he is healing leprosy or physical illness, what he's doing in that moment is not actually breaking the rules of creation. He's bringing it back to what it was supposed to be in the first place. It was supposed to be a good creation where we did not have death and sickness and brokenness in this world. And so rather than God kind of getting this little card to, you know, make it all happen, do what he wants, maybe he's bringing it back to what it was supposed to be in the first place. And I'm also not, my faith is not bothered when we realize maybe there is a a physiological or a geological or a weather pattern explanation for some of these things. I don't know. Right? I, I don't know if when Charlton Heston was crossing the Red Sea, like did God like stick his hands down and pull the water across? Or did like was there a wind that was happening? Was there like a raised portion? I don't know. But if scientific or kind of geological structures play into that, I'm okay with that. My faith's not broken. I'm not shattered. I'm still doing good. And I hope that you would. Two, because so many people, they say, I can't believe in a God that hates science. Well, I can't either. He's not that way. That's not who God is. Okay, I got one more mythical God. We're going to go quick through this one. We're going to talk about the gap God. Turn to your neighbor, say gap God. Prove you're awake. Gap God. Five times fast. Gap God. Gap God. Gap God. Okay, this is hard. Here's what the gap God is. The gap God is when we use God to just fill in any blank space. We're just going to use him as the little blanket statement. If we don't understand something, well, it just must be Jesus. If, if it doesn't make sense to you, well, it's just, it's just got to be God. In, in the TV show, The Office, there is an accountant, and his name is Kevin. And he comes up with a number. He says, this is a Kalevin, This is Kevin's special number, that if there's ever a column that doesn't make sense, if it's underspent, overspent, whatever, you just put a little kleven in there, and it just makes it all go right. And some of, like the accountants and the math nerds in this congregation are like squeamish about that, right? Like we're like, ugh. But God isn't like that. We can't look at the world and just say, well, I guess God. Like we can't explain it. And, and I just would caution us to be careful because this can be dangerous. So what if... When you go to the mall, you're looking for the parking spot. And you're just driving everywhere. You've made a couple laps, and you see one. You're like, praise the Lord. You drive in to your parking spot. But what happens if, as you're backing out of the parking spot, someone backs into you? Did God make that happen? And this is how we have really long discussions over coffee, right? Like, what? What is what does it say and i just think it's dangerous if we're going to put words in god's mouth you're going to see we're very careful as a preaching and teaching team and we're just going to be very careful that unless we're like quoting scripture you don't hear me saying church this is what god wants you to know it's like no this is what i read this is what i see in the world this is what i think this is what i prayed through and this is what I have to offer. I'm not saying, you know, God says, you, Mike, need to go to Africa right now as a missionary. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Because I'm not going to invoke God's name and put words in his mouth. Ecclesiastes 5.2, it says that God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And I would say it's a really good thing for us to not believe in a God that never existed in the first place, to move beyond those stories that we were told, to move beyond these things that we've picked up about who God is that aren't even true to begin with, and to reject that. Let's let's throw away the bad. Let's keep the good. And, And I would just encourage you, if you rejected God at any point in your life for any number of these reasons to maybe do some digging about if that's actually who God is, or is that just the story you were told, like Arthur going into Mr. Rathbone's classroom? Like, is that just what they told you about who God is? Because let's get to know the real thing. And I would say, Dallas Church, we have to be a safe place to ask questions. Any small group, any Bible study that is happening at Dallas Church, if someone comes in and says, I do not like this passage, I do not understand this passage, I do not get how this thing about God works out, that is an invitation for us to have good discussion. That is not a moment for us to be like, eh, excommunication, back to Ben's office, there you go. No, that's not not how this works. No, we have to be a safe place to have those conversations and those dialogues. Um, The Sticky Faith Project, which was out of... Fuller Youth Institute did this massive study about people who stuck with their faith. We do a lot of studies on people who reject faith. This one was about the people who stuck with it. And one of the things that they found is that doubt is not actually a killer of faith. That it's doubt that is unexpressed, that we keep inside, that we don't process, we don't talk about it. You just kind of feel ashamed that maybe you don't believe all the things that we're singing on Sunday right next to other people who apparently they always believe 100% all the time, all the things that we're singing. But we have to have space to process through that doubt and to have good places to have those conversations. When Dan Brown, who is famous for having written The Da Vinci Code, was in high school, he walked up to the minister at his church and he said, I got a lot of questions. Okay, How does God like, make plants on day three but not put planets and sunlight and stuff like that until day four? Like, How does this work? How did Jesus actually get raised from the dead? He's got lots of big questions. And the minister looked at young Dan Brown and said, nice boys, don't ask those questions. Which is about the worst answer anyone asking questions about faith can receive. And I want to juxtapose that story with what actually happens in the Bible. Because the people of Israel, God's people, they get their name based on a story where Jacob was literally wrestling with God. Not like I do, where I say, I'm just wrestling with God right now. No, like I'm not on the mat, nobody's sweating, like that's... But Jacob actually was wrestling with God. He was trying to pin him down and assert his will and actually wrestles with God. And that's the name that God gives his people. And I think that gives us some space. I think that gives us some space to ask the questions. I love this verse, which just like in times of uncertainty and in the last couple years has just been resonating in my heart. It is from Mark chapter 9. And it's the story where there's a father and he wants Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus tells him, well, if you believe I can heal your son. And so the father tells him, he says, oh, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me with the parts that I don't believe in. Chew on that for a little bit, right? Like, God, I believe, but help me out with the unbelief part. And and what, what some of the theologians have said about this, they've pointed it out, and they say it this way, That when it comes to our belief, when it comes to our faith, it is the object of the faith, the thing that we are trusting in, not the quality or like just how much faith we have that is what saves us, is what brings us into relationship with God. Imagine this, and don't get too scared, right? But imagine you're falling off a cliff and you reach out, you grab a branch. Does how much you trust that branch actually matter in that situation? Not a whole lot. Like, you don't have a lot of options. You're just grabbing the branch. And what actually matters is how true and reliable that branch is. Like, how deep do the roots go? How trustworthy is this thing? Because you're kind of just hanging on for dear life. And maybe we've been there. Maybe we are there. Where we say, God, I do not have a faith that is complete and perfect. I see some things in scripture. I see some things in my life. I don't like them. I don't know what you're doing. I wish it was different. And God said, that's okay. We say, God, help our unbelief. And so this series, Mythical Gods, I want to land the plane here and say, let's have some space. Let's have some space. Let's be invited to wrestle with who God actually is and move beyond those stories we were told about him. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We want to invite you into our hearts. God, I do pray that you would show us what you're doing. God, that you would show us more about who you are. God, you would show us uh, just more about how who you are actually works in the world. Give us more understanding. Give us more faith. Give us more trust. We love you, Jesus. Amen.